0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Return of the Shadow class. This is class number five. uh, Session number five in the uh, Return of the Shadow class with the Mythgard Academy. Good to talk to you guys again this evening. Uh, We uh, last left Bingo and Marmaduke. I mean, Mariadoc. No longer Marmaduke, sadly. And Odo and Frodo uh, uh, in the old forest hanging out with Tom Bombadil. We spent some time talking about Tom Bombadil last night. Last night. (laughs) <laughs> last week I, I i mean last week yesterday in the world of the class um, and uh yeah karina <laughs> thank you i i uh, I worked hard to coordinate my shirt with with the slide presentation really keen and uh uh discerning presenters always make sure that the slide matches uh their wardrobe i think that's pretty that's pretty clear, um, so I wanted to say hi to um Hi to everybody, of course, both uh, our regular audience in the NetMood, and also uh, to the people who are watching on Twitch. Uh, I, I do have the Twitch chat out. Hi, fire. good to see you. Um, so I can I can see comments that are made there uh, as well. Though I, I I would encourage you to come and join uh, the NetMood as well. It would make it a little bit easier. But it's all cool. You can stay there and watch, and it's all good. Um, so thanks for that. Okay, we are going to... Um, um, we're... we're, we're we're, we're going to jump back into into Brie here. We're going to start off tonight looking at the, uh, the next plot outline projection that Tolkien does. I always get really excited about these. The plot projections are pretty much my favorite part. I mean, it's really cool to see the chapters as they're beginning to emerge. Uh, especially, well, I don't know if it's especially. You'll notice there have basically been kind of three different... Categories that okay, I would say there are three different categories of things that we see going on in the return of the shadow, right? As we're going through the all this manuscript material um, for Tolkien working through the Water of the Rings material. One category of things is initial drafts of stuff which are really different, like where we can see he's you know his ideas are going to change pretty significantly. So, I would include, for instance, uh, the early versions of the long expected party. Here, right, where we can see there's there's clearly material that he's still going to use, but conceptually it's all going to be it's all going to be quite different, right? Um, and then there's those parts which are very close to the published text, so close that Christopher Tolkien doesn't even give them to us, right? He just gives us that little summary, like he did with the Old Forest chapter, right, where he's like, it's basically exactly the same as the published Fellowship of the Ring, except for some small details. And here, and he throws us a few bones, right? Here's like the most interesting bits. Of uh, of of what's different in the draft compared to the published uh, version, that's kind of fun too. Of course, in its own different way, that's where you can have like the most uh, sort of detail oriented fun. You know, to be able to see okay, the 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 thing is basically the final story, but let's think about the, those particular details that are different, and let's kind of putting it in its different context. Um, what's um, what is uh, you know. What can we see? But the third category of things are these: the the moments where where Tolkien is just simply groping, right? The places where he's just kind of jotting down ideas, um, really kind of thinking to himself on paper, right? What am I going to do? What's going to happen next? I don't know. Let's jot down ideas. And of course, t- for me, that's I think that's really the most fun. I love doing the other things, and it's really cool. Um, but I think it's uh, pretty neat. Actually, to see uh, some of these things begin to emerge, so I'm going to we're, we're going to start with the one that he did, basically kind of sketching out from from the Barrow Downs through to Rivendell, right? So I mean, he, he'd already established that that trajectory, right? So we're going to get Bingo and company from uh, you know from Bag End to to Buckland, right? You know that 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 general concept, and then of course along the way they start getting chased by black riders, and then once we get to Buckland, uh, we're gonna we need another adventure, right? And We've already decided we're going to Rivendell. It was like the manifest destiny, right, of Bingo and Company to get to Rivendell, as we said, You know, remember we've seen like three different rationales for getting them to, to Rivendell, but they were always going to Rivendell one way or the other. Uh, so, uh, so we we need to get them from Buckland to there and have an adventure along the way. And we saw him brainstorming the adventures. Remember the witch house and stuff. And of course, Tom Bombadil uh, and the Barrow Whites win that particular lottery, right? So so, so they are the adventure that they have along the way. Um, and uh, now, so now we have sort of this, this next leg, right? Okay, so after they leave this adventure, how do they get to what happens on the way to Rivendell? Um, and it's, to me, kind of interesting, right, uh, to see how he kind of lays this out at first. So let me, uh, let's look at this. Here's the here's the first bit. Oh, hang on a second. I gotta shift things a little bit here. There we go. Better. Okay. Um, they sleep at the inn and hear news of Gandalf. Jolly landlord. Drinking song. Okay, that's our stay at Brie. Right that's that's uh, in his initial conception we 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 see nothing more <laughs> about and this uh, you know notice the 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 kind of conclusions we can now you always have to be a little bit cautious drawing conclusions from absence right so the, the fact that he doesn't mention certain things doesn't prove that he'd never thought of them at all before right but it seems pretty clear that uh things like the meeting with Trotter for instance It's not central in his mind. It doesn't come up, right, in this projection. Uh, That seems to be a thing that kind of happens along the way. Now, in Tolkien's defense, so are the Black Riders, right? So it's not like the things that just happen along the way are unimportant. Don't mean that. it's just interesting to me that that's that's clearly not part of the original plan. Um, of course, I say an eventful stay in Brie uh, sarcastically, as it's not actually, of course, eventful at all. Though, Karina, you're absolutely right. Uh, I don't want to underestimate the importance of drinking songs. That's very valuable and uh, and and obviously hugely important. Who am I um, uh, to, uh, uh, to 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 um, you know? Uh, Downplay that, but anyway, um, the news of Gandalf is interesting, right? Um, Gandalf has been so far. You'll remember Gandalf has been on the fringes of this narrative all the way through, it, right? He, of course, he was. He was. He was in the party from not the very beginning, but from fairly early on. He was. He was. He was. I think was didn't he come in in the second draft, as I recall, of the first chapter? So he's been in the story from the beginning. But once the story really took off, right? Once we have the Black Riders, and now we're running from something, and there's this ring, and and we don't know what, you know, and it's uh, important that we not get caught, and all these things. Um, Gandalf has, been, you know, we've 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 talked to the elves about Gandalf, right? Did Gandalf tell you nothing, right? Uh, and and there seemed to be some uncertainty, right, in Tolkien's mind about how Gandalf should be involved or what Gandalf's own plan should have been, like why isn't Gandalf with them, right? If this big important thing is going on, why did Gandalf leave, right? That seems to be a question which Tolkien is now asking himself, right? Uh, <laughs> once the Black Riders show up. Um, and now, of course, we, we, we're we we're, we're coming to this again, right? So, okay, so they're going to get news of Gandalf apart from the jolliness of the landlord and the presence of drinking songs. There's there's literally nothing else that he speculates uh, about Brie here. So, um Okay, uh, number two. Uh, Continuing on in the outline. Tom sings a song over Odo, Frodo, Mary. Wake now, my Mary... Something or other. (laughs) Something of the pillar? And, of course, remember... This stuff that Tolkien writes when he's just jotting notes for himself is like his worst handwriting ever, right? So it's really, really difficult, uh, even for Christopher, to make out what it is. Sorry, something of the pillar, maybe, and how they they become separated. Tom puts a blessing or a curse on the gold and lays it on top of the mound. None of the hobbits will have any, but Tom takes a brooch for goldberry. Tom says he will go with them after chiding them for sleeping by the stone pillar. They soon find the road and... The way seems short. They turn along the road. Gallops come after them. Tom turns and holds up his hand. They fly back. Okay. A uh, couple things here. Um yeah, karita I, lo- I was gonna just point exactly that same thing I, I, Carita says I love how it's a blessing or a curse either way right b- b- one or the other it's, pr- it's pretty much immaterial <laughs> whether it's a blessing or a curse that he lays upon the gold um, I do I, I am fascinated by that right because now but I, you can kind of see it right on the one hand this is a this is a like, curses on gold are kind of a thing in Tolkien's world. Um, if your familiarity is primarily with the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, and even with the published Silmarillion, that might not strike you quite so forcibly, right? I mean, there's the there's the issue about the dragon gold and the Hobbit, right? Which is a little bit unclear. There's uh, uh, there's uh, that is it's unclear to say like to what extent an actual curse is involved. It's not really talked about in that, with that, like that word doesn't really come up. Uh, is it ever used in the Hobbit? I'm not sure it is actually. Um, but anyway, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like vaguely indirectly an issue, but it's not really a central, it's not, again, you could be forgiven for not finding it a really central concern. Um, there are some issues again in the Silmarillion, in the published Silmarillion, but it's not really prominent. Um, for those of us who have been going through the history of Middle Earth series, however, uh, we will have noticed that this issue of a curse laid upon gold, um, especially by a dying person or like a dead, like somebody who dies, or like the treasure is taken away, or they're killed for the treasure, or something like that. That's that's uh, you're pretty much guaranteed that the, that the that the treasure is going to be cursed at that point. And of course, the primary example of this was the curse of Meme the Dwarf, the curse that Meme laid upon the gold, uh, the gold of Nargothrond, which ultimately ends up uh, with Thingol in Doriath. The actual role... Meme still curses the treasure in the published Silmarillion, but nobody really pays attention. It's not like we we never get much attention drawn to the fact that it's, like the effic- it's unclear what e- efficacy, if any, that curse actually has. Um, whereas... As we saw earlier on in the history of Middle Earth series, in the earlier versions of the story, it's an enormous effect. In fact, it's really the primary. Back in the Book of Lost Tales, we saw this was like the the the, the primary theme. It was more important than the Silmarils. Um, so, so yeah, it's kind of a it's it's kind of a big thing, right? Um, uh, and. Uh, we even see the dwarves, again, it's the kind of thing you notice once your attention gets drawn to it. We see the dwarves doing it in The Hobbit, right? When they stash the gold from the, the you know, the, the the troll gold, right? They put runes over it. They're clearly cursing it. Like if anybody else finds this gold and takes and steals it, they lay their curse upon it, right? That seems pretty clear uh, in retrospect that that's what Thorin and company are doing to the gold that they find and hide. Um, but again, you know, the published book doesn't make a big thing of it. So notice, in other words, by saying he puts a blessing or a curse on the gold, we have two possible situations, but they're not opposite exactly. In either case, we have, there's going to be a curse on the gold, right? That's what those two things have in common, because that's why Tom would have to bless it, right? Uh, so either either it's not cursed and Tom curses it, or it's cursed and Tom blesses it, right? To, presumably, I, I presume, to take, the, to take the curse off of it, Right uh, to kind of break the curse of the gold and notice that is what stays in the published version. Right answer, blessing. He he goes with blessing. Right when Tom says his, when he spreads the gold out and says you know he's going to leave it free to all finders. Right uh, 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 birds, beasts. Uh, you know uh, uh, you know uh, birds, beasts. Uh, something and men he doesn't say elves, does he? And men and all kindly creatures. Um, anyway, he talks about the, the 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 power of the barrow being broken and no barrow white being able to come uh, to come there again, right? Um. So uh um so yeah yeah um. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Kevin. Exactly. That's the gold we were talking about. The gold uh, from Doriath that Baron and Luthien fought the the dwarves over. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a curse, but again, the curse that is laid upon it is uh, made much more instrumental in the uh, in the story and in the disasters that follow in the earlier versions. That's all. Um, uh, yeah. So okay. So. Um. Oh, uh, no, Tomas. We did hit the fox, the talking fox. He was there. He was there in the earlier address. Yeah, we we they he came across them. He was there, um, in the uh, on the the road to the road to uh, right bef- before they, before, after, in the midst of meeting the Black Riders. That totally happened. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So. Okay. So. Tolkien ultimately is going, to, is going to go with blessing, right? Apparently he, he seems to decide Tom Bombadil not going to be one to actually lay a curse on the gold. But see, I would submit the fact that he's put it this way, a blessing or a curse, right? Um, In my mind, I mean, it sounds... And again, Karita, I had exactly the same reaction that you did. It seems comical, right, that he seems to be like present these two very opposite things and, and seem to be indifferent as to which one of them happened. I take that essentially, uh, to, to to mean or to suggest that whether he blesses it or he lays a curse upon it, it's essentially going to be the same kind of thing, right? That it's, it's not like, in one possibility he's imagining the benevolent Tom laying the blessing on the gold and in the other he is uh, uh you know, laying a malevolent curse upon it. And, you know, and so that it rep- that they, to those two options would represent a radically different, you know, view of Tom's character. I don't believe that at all. Um, I think that what this suggests is that it's basically, he does have in mind an action that Tom is going to perform. The question is whether you characterize it as him blessing the gold or him cursing the gold, right? Uh, because, of course, what Tom, think about what Tom does with the gold in the published Fellowship of the Ring. Right, he uh, um, to everybody, you know, to the Barrow Whites, they'd probably see that as a curse, right? They can't get it anymore. You know, the Barrow White can never return to the Barrow. Um, everybody else would see it as a blessing, right? So I think that what he's what he's doing is probably you know, he probably has in mind a fairly definite thing that Tom's going to do. It's just a question of whether of how it's characterized. Uh, I would think um, in the end. Exactly, John, cursing the gold and the barrow against the whites. Exactly, exactly. Right. James was thinking the same thing. Um, yeah, yeah. That's um, um uh, I think that that's uh, that 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 seems to be what he has in mind there. But I agree; it's it, it is a very comical and even kind of off-putting uh, phrasing there. I love the fact that Tom's taking the brooch for Goldberry is one of the. Th- things from the beginning, right? In this very short description of what's going to happen with the barrow, you know, around the barrow, um, the taking of the brooch for Goldberry is a, is a, uh, an original idea, right? It's one of the first things that occurs to him uh, when he's thinking about that. And that is interesting. I mean, it suggests to me that this, this glimpse Lots of people talk about, of course, Tolkien himself talked about, the perception of depth, of course, of historical depth that the story has. Um, and it's interesting to me, that moment when Tom Bombadil takes the brooch from the treasure and says he's going to give it to Goldberry, and he says, you know, "'Fair was she who once wore, th- wore this upon her shoulder. Goldberry shall wear it now, and we will not forget her.'" Um, lots of people, I, you know, when I'm doing, like, an open Tolkien Q&A, right, I get, I, I get that question a fair bit. Like, whose brooch was that? I don't know whose brooch that was. Nobody knows whose brooch that was, right? Um, it's never a thing that's that's answered. Um, but what it's, it's, it's... I would list that as one of the, you know, a, a really great example of one of the passages in, in The Lord of the Rings which gives... That impression of depth, right? There's this weight of history behind things. We don't even, you know, it's, it doesn't matter for the story. It's not relevant to the story, right? But it shows us about. It gives us a, a kind of an indirect glimpse, right? And a, which is a, a, very powerful glimpse, of the history of this land and place. Tom, you know, kind of like that wall that Tom seems to remember something sad about, right? Um, which I suspect personally of being the boundary between the, uh, the realm of Cardolan and the, the realm of Arthedain, but. Anyway, um, he, uh, he seems, to, he seems to, to, to remember something sad about it, but it's not explained, right? And again, that's something we can kind of maybe piece together or get a sense of what he's talking about from the appendices, but, but, but really in no other way. The thing that interests me here is to see that that kind of element, right, that small detail... Which leads to that perception of depths is one of the first things he thinks of, right, when he's brainstorming uh, these things. And that's fascinating to me, right? Fascinating to me. What, 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 What always fascinated me is Tolkien's restraint, right? I think, I mean, I myself am such a pedant that if i were writing something like that i don't think i could resist right i would have like a long footnote or i would be i i'd i'd tell the story right um even if it weren't relevant until like an editor forced me you know like with threat of excommunication to uh to 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 take it out right i would totally uh, um uh I, I I would totally I would totally do it, but Tolkien doesn't. He's he's very content to kind of make these references and just let 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 them sit, right? And it's 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 wonderful. I mean, it's one of the things that's sort of characteristically wonderful about the Lord of the Rings. And so I find it therefore particularly delightful that um, that it's in this that it's kind of this deep in the fabric of the story, right? That to me is just just totally uh, totally fascinating. Um, Yeah, Nancy says he does a lot of putting things in and then taking them out again. Exactly, Nancy. And see, in some ways, it would be... uh, It would be less surprising if those things that are left in, you know, and, and end up merely as the sort of perception of depth pieces in the published work. If those were things that he did... Do in more detail at one point, but then just kind of cut it back and and you know left it in merely as a perception of depth pointer, right? Um, if that's what happened, I, that would still be kind of interesting, but it would be the result of a different kind of process, right? Instead, to me, what's really fascinating is that this is what it this is what it always was, you know. I mean, it's almost like it reminds me, and this is a, com- a comical parallel, but uh if you know anything about uh 18th century uh literature really 18th century artistic sensibility in England um uh especially in the first half of the century you get the romantic period and i don't just mean like Wordsworth and uh uh you know and Shelley i'm thinking of Byron especially and not just Byron again not cuz it's not just poetry it's in visual art as well and it's in landscape art very notably um right where uh instead of, like, pretty and symmetrical and everything like that, you know, with, like, just like a, a view with just the proper number of trees all kind of balanced out and some artistically arranged sheep and that kind of thing, which was popular earlier on, instead of that, you get like, you know, a, a blasted wasteland with, like, uh, uh ragged trees and, uh, like, a, a hermitage in it and everything, right? Um, all that, all that stuff. Um, Nancy, exactly. Uh, th- all the stuff that, 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 that Marianne loves in Sense and Sensibility. Exactly. Exactly that stuff. Um, one of the things that they would do, uh, like rich people who were trying to be like hip to the new style of like artistic sensibility in the early 90s, would construct ruins on their property. Right. There they, they weren't ruins. Right. They, so they, they would they would have they would pay someone a significant amount of money to come in and build a ruin on their land because ruins are awesome. Right. I mean, it's like there's nothing more picturesque than a ruin. Um, so uh, uh, there's um, that's that's in a sense. Again, it's 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 not. I mean I think that building a ruin on your property is a little bit silly but uh but in a sense it's it's it, the uh the brooch almost reminds me of that right I again like what what fascinates me about this this particular example of one of those details which gives that sense of depth it never like it's like a ruin that was never a house right um this is a story that Tolkien never told right a story and in many of these I'm willing to believe him when he says, as he sometimes does in his letters, that he doesn't know, right? The answer, he doesn't know the backstory to these things. Um, That he, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, um, that he he just thought this way, right? That he himself was content with the sort of emotional and, in a way, even mythic suggestiveness of... This brooch which recalls some lady from the past whose memory is sad but now being retained by Tom Bombadil and Goldberry. I mean, the fact that they don't tell us about her, right... Is, uh, is 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 like, in, like our attention is drawn to it by the fact that like Tom says we will not forget her. It's like well bully for you we don't even get a chance to forget her right we, <laughs> forget her we never knew her right um, but uh, but Tom doesn't share right and neither does Tolkien and again it's from the beginning and uh, uh, Steve Melese, if you're thinking of Tom Stoppard's Arcadia in my description of the picturesque so am I uh, uh, his is one of my favorite treatments of that whole. Uh, moment there, I um, love Tom Stoppard Arcadia probably my favorite twentieth century play. But anyway, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, good. And James, you're right. It is a way of demonstrating how old Tom is. Like, but but again, it's like Tom knows things that even Tolkien doesn't know, right? And that's part of Tolkien's initial conception. And I think that's just awesome. I mean, I just love that. Um, and and this is what to me the 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 presence of this detail in this outline seems to imply, right? Seems to suggest. I just love that that's one of the first things that he thinks of. Whoa! I'm oh, sorry. Just accidentally paged through all my slides. Um, uh, and, I, cause and I don't want to move on without talking about what happens, about, about the action that happens. Okay, first, notice again the same characteristic thing in the first paragraph. Um, how he... He starts with pure plot summary, right? Tom sings a song over Odo Frodo Mary, um, wake now my Mary, right? And then he slips into dialogue, right? He starts, he starts, um, uh, like the the line that Tom Bombadil would deliver comes to him right, so he immediately starts writing that down. We've seen that happen many times, right? Where he starts slipping into dialogue, he starts thinking it start the the actual the actual wording starts to come to him right as he's as he's sketching it out. I also, by the way, I have a theory, just a theory. This is wild speculation on my part, um, but I have a theory about that first sentence. Tom sings a song over Odo Frodo Mary. Why did he say that? Why does he write Odo Frodo Mary without any like? Conjunctions or anything like that, or why doesn't he just say sing a song over three hobbits, right? Uh, you know, or over the three or something. Presumably, he knew which one. Well, like, it wasn't Bingo, right? I mean, the scene is not complicated, right? Bingo is conscious; the other ones are not conscious, right? So it's not like he was debating which one should be the one who's not. I mean, it's Bingo, right? Who's conscious? Um, my uh, my 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 theory is that. That's the order in which they're lying, Odo, Frodo, and Mary. Um, in other words, my theory is that this sentence is an example of Tolkien thinking pictorially, right? He's seeing the picture of Odo, Frodo, and Mary lying in the in the barrow, and so he, he, he notes that, right? Sings a song over Odo, Frodo, Mary, right, as they're lying there. Um, part of what leads me to this theory is that, I mean, we know... Tolkien talked about. Tolkien was a painter. People forget that Tolkien was a painter, but his painting was pretty... Was pre- he denigrated his own painting all the time. He was an extremely humble painter, um, but he did think about... seeing this is one of the reasons why The Lord of the Rings is so full of landscape description, because that's how he thinks, right? He pictures things in his head and then describes them. Um, and... Uh, I suspect that he's picturing this scene as well um, uh, again, just a uh, uh suspicion on my part, not a nothing definite but uh anyway, last paragraph here. Tom says he will go with them after chiding them for sleeping by the stone pillar. They soon find the road, and the way seems short. They turn along the road, gallops come after them. Tom turns and holds uh, holds up his hand. They fly back. Once again, we see the power of Tom Bombadil, right? Once again, we get this implied connection between the Barrow Whites and the Black Riders, right? So somebody's coming galloping up, and Tom just holds up his hand, and they turn around and run away, right? Um, here's why I think this is particularly um, particularly important. Look where we go from here. Pass rapidly over the rest of Journey to Rivendell. Any riders on the road? Make them foolishly turn aside to visit Trollstones. This delays them. One day at last, they halted on a rise and looked forward to the ford, galloping behind. Seven, three, four black riders hastening along the road. They have gold rings and crowns. Flight over ford. Bingo, written above. Gandalf? Flings a stone and imitates Tom Bombadil. Go back and ride away. The riders halt as if astonished, and looking up at the hobbits on the bank. The hobbits can see no faces in their hoods. Go back, says Bingo, but he is not Tom Bombadil, and the riders ride into the ford but just then a rumbling rush is heard and a great wall of water bowling stones roars down the river from the mountains. Elves arrive. The riders draw back just in time in dismay. The hobbits ride as hard as they can to Rivendell. Okay. Um, Yana, that's exactly what is striking you there is exactly what was striking to me too. You may remember, in the published Fellowship of the Ring, there is a reference to Tom Bombadil at the ford, right? When Frodo crosses the ford, and he's there on his horse, and he's confronting the witch king who's, stand, who's you know on his horse in the river, and Frodo says, go back, right? Go back to Mordor and trouble me no more. And the narrator says, but Frodo had not the power of Bombadil, right? And the writers just laugh at him when he says that. Um, and I had always found that um, passage a little odd. Um, that is, and well, not odd exactly, I mean, it's not like it doesn't make sense. We see the kind of authority that Tom Bombadil has, and, and of course, the, there is a, a sort of a fairly poignant parallel, right, between the moment when, built, when Frodo, in the published book, is in the barrow. Right? And the Barrow White is there, and, 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 and it seems like the, they're, they're about to be destroyed, right? And then Tom Bombadil comes breaking in, and, and evil flees, right? Um, and so, like, the parallel between that and this moment at the Ford, right, where Frodo's alone and the enemy's about to come take, you know, so there's, you know, I can see the parallel. And so, the the, I, the fact that the narrator is asking me to recall Tom Bombadil at that moment, it's not like it's weird, it's not like it doesn't work. It's good, I like it, I always did like it, but. It always struck me as slightly odd, in the sense that, like, you know, the, the reaction I always had to that passage is like, oh, yeah, Bombadil. Because, of course, by that time, Tom Bombadil was, like, five chapters ago, right? Um, it just, it's sort of like, okay, yeah, no, right, I, I, I get the parallel, or, like, anti-parallel between Frodo and Tom Bombadil there, but it's a little bit surprising that we would go with Tom Bomb- I mean, indeed, in the published book, there's there's between uh, between Tom Bombadil and the fight to the Ford, there's another person in between whom the Black Riders run away from, right? Gorefindel, whom they've just met, who in fact is like right over there, right? Uh, With Frodo saying this, um, so uh, you know, like, so you'd think like slightly more immediate would be like, you know, but but. But you know, Frodo didn't have the power of an Elf Lord or something like that. Um, but no, no, it, it goes back to Bombadil. Well, as soon the first time I read this passage, I was like, oh, well, of course, right? Of course. And from this vantage point, it's a no-brainer comparison, right? It's a no-brainer comparison for two reasons. For reason number one, there is no intervening space, right? In Tolkien's mind, as he's planning this out, he's got, remember, nothing happens at Bree, and there is no Weathertop, right? So we're basically going, right, you know, after they leave the Barrow Downs, the next adventure is the flight to the fort, right? So those two things are, in fact, consecutive events in the story as it is in Tolkien's mind at that moment. The other factor, of course, is that Tom Bombadil is the person, the only person, with power over the Black Riders, right? And he's shown his power not just over Barrow Whites, who are kind of parallel to... The wraiths, in some way, right? But over the black riders themselves, personally, right? And so, therefore, you know, because it's th- this is not the first time the Ford is not the first place where the riders have caught up with them on the road. It's just that before, when they caught up with them on the road, Tom Bombadil was there and he held up his hand and they ran away. And so, talking or er, so talking, so Frodo is trying to recreate that moment, right? Um, so again. In this context, it makes absolute, total sense. I love it. Um, but uh, um, but it's, it, it remains in the published text. And again, the parallel still works, but it works a little bit less intuitively, because neither one of those two things are true, right? The two incidents are not immediately back-to-back to, back to each other at all anymore. Uh, there's now a long breeze sequence, plus the weathertop sequence in between, and, uh, and also, of course, there is no longer a passage of Tom Bombadil uh, defying the Black Riders themselves, right? And making them to flee, so there's no immediate precedent for applying the power of Tom Bombadil to the Black Riders. Um, anyway, uh, I, I, think, uh, I think that it's... So this, this is one of those moments in The Return of the Shadow that was like sort of explained... One of those kind of niggling little questions or, or sort of uncertainties I'd always had, so I, I really, I really enjoyed that. Um, what else do you notice? Of course, we still don't know how many black riders there are, right? There's either either seven or possibly three or possibly four, right? There is a there's there's more than two, but not, quite, but we're still not up to nine, right? Uh, black riders, Um, they have rings and crowns. Uh, The fact that they have rings is itself kind of interesting. Of course, you know, they've been connected with rings and passing through rings, right, Uh, uh, since Tolkien began to speculate about wraiths, which we did two classes ago. Um, But also remember at that time he said that they didn't have them, right? Right. Um, that the rings were taken back and they remained slaves, you know, wraith slaves under the under the will of the necromancer. But, uh, but yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good. And uh, yeah, Diego, you're right. In the in this original, uh, Tom is the only one who commands them, the the Black Riders. Right? The other characters just threaten them or chase them away. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, I don't um, and, and with the crowns I, I, I don't know about the gold rings and crowns Like, we're, uh, one possibility, of course remember, they've been hooded all the time, so it's possible that they have had visible crowns underneath their hoods the whole time it's apparent that their clothing does not become invisible remember Tolkien wrestling with that issue? Because Bilbo's clothing becomes invisible when he puts on his ring, so why should the clothing of the ringwraiths be visible? Why should you be able to see their cloaks and their boots? Right? It would be pretty inconvenient if Bilbo's, you know, cloak and, and, and boots remain visible um, if, uh, you know, when he puts on the ring. So, so you will recall Tolkien kind of weighing that question um, before. But, uh, anyway, so it's not impossible that they've been wearing crowns the whole time. Um, uh, and possibly, uh, uh, possibly rings, as well. I guess. Um, and uh, yeah, Ben, you're right that rings are typical features of ancient kings. I mean, this does for them to have a ring on their hand and and, uh, and and crowns on their heads does sort of establish them as, uh, you know, lords, right? Does uh, make them, Though, of course, it um, it also establishes some pretty significant irony here, right? Uh, with the ringwraiths, because uh, of course they're they're kingly, but they're also slaves. So there's that, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, now there is no. James exactly in the published version, Frodo can see them more clearly because of his wound. Like he himself is becoming wraithified, right through through his wound. But he has no wound, right? There's no weather top. There's no stabbing. Um, nothing has happened to Bingo at all here. Uh, so what they're seeing seems to be either a dish to detail that was not noticed or not able to be seen before. Something new is being revealed about them here, but it's not because of any changing, any changing circumstances. Um. Okay, so one more uh, about the, on this uh, plot outline. I was blown away by how it ends, right? At Rivendell, sleeping Bilbo, Gandalf. Some explanations. Ringmail of Bilbo in Barrow and the Dark Rocks. The three hobbits had dashed past the rocks when suddenly they all became shut off. Gandalf had sent the water down with Elrond's permission. Gandalf astonished to hear about Tom Consultation of Hobbits with Elrond and Gandalf The Quest of the Fiery Mountain Boom! There it is, right? All of a sudden, right? Because remember, we had nothing other than Rivendell, right? Tolkien is like, where is he going to go? Uh, remember that passage we looked at last time where it seemed to be a, a legitimately open question to Tolkien what direction they headed? East, west, north, or south, right? Um, we had no idea what the ultimate quest, what the ultimate purpose of Bingo's journeying was going to be. Nothing past Rivendell anyway, right? He was always going to go to Rivendell. But what was going to happen after that? Where was he going to go after that? There was never a hint. And now all of a sudden, in in his plot notes, he gets to Rivendell, and boom, the quest of the Fiery Mountain. There it is it has um it has emerged right um and that's pretty cool um now let's talk for a second about gandalf so finally we're going to catch up with gandalf right so now we're we're going to get some after the fact exposition from gandalf uh, let me go back for a second because we i didn't mention the gandalf thing here right um Bingo written above, Gandalf flings a stone and imitates Tom Bombadil. That's really interesting. It sounds so... uh, That seems... I I take that to mean that Tolkien was considering having Gandalf personally show up at the Ford, right? And that Gandalf would attempt to defy the Ringwraiths and chase them away like Tom Bombadil did, right? Um go back and ride away, would be then Gandalf's line, not Bingo's line. Um, uh, Now, it doesn't say uh, it doesn't say whether, how successful that is, right? Um, By the time we get down here, go back says Bingo, but he is not Tom Bombadil. The the choice has been kind of made there, right? That is to say, he, he, um, Uh, he doesn't um, Gandalf is not in the picture anymore, right? So his kind of flirtation of the idea of Gandalf showing up and doing a you know, you shall not pass at the flight to the Fords seems to have gone already. Um, But it does therefore seem, I I take it to suggest that Gandalf is probably involved from the beginning in uh, the whole Ford business, the rumbling rush, right, and the uh, the water, the great something probably wall of water, bowling stones, right, uh, and the elves arrive physically, of course, at this point. Anyway, so so. We've been entertaining the possibility of Gandalf. Gandalf has almost shown up lots of times so far, right? Remember, he almost showed up right after the party, but then he turned into a black rider, and then he almost showed up for a conversation later on, but that didn't seem to get anywhere. And then he, you know, and we were then we we're going to hear news about Gandalf in Bree, and now then he was going to show up at the Ford, but now finally we're going to show up with uh, Gandalf and a sleeping Bilbo. I don't know. What's up with the sleeping Bilbo? I'm guessing that, again, this is, um, this is, uh, uh, uh... does this mean that Bilbo is asleep, like in bed asleep, like there's something wrong with Bilbo? I would doubt it. Um, My suspicion is that that might mean nothing more than when Bingo wakes up there's Bilbo like asleep in his chair or something like that. Um, you know, this might just be another instance of Tolkien kind of picturing the scene, right? When Bingo wakes up, what does he see? Right? He the first thing he sees is Bilbo like nodded off asleep in a chair, as we know Bilbo does do, right, later on in the story. Um and uh and, and, and Gandalf, right, is also there and then Gandalf gives some explanations. That seems to me the you know, the 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 likeliest explanation. Um, the business about the ringmail. You guys are uh, interested in the ringmail. I I can't explain this. I have no idea. Let's see if we can work it out. Maybe you can help me, because I don't get it. So, please explain it to me. Ringmail of Bilbo in Barrow and the Dark Rocks. Okay, so... I I assume we mean the Mithril Coat, right? Bilbo's never had any other mail that we know of, right? So ringmail of Bilbo in Barrow. In Barrow and the Dark Rocks. Does that mean that it's in the Barrow uh, along with some (laughs) Dark Rocks? Or is there, like, a Barrow and Dark Rocks, and that's where Bilbo's ringmail is? Why is Bilbo's ringmail in a Barrow? Is this a problem? Is this as seems likely to me, his next adventure, right? When he gets to Rivendell, where is he going to go next? Right? We're going to get some explanations. So, is this the problem he has to solve? Bilbo has lost his ringmail. It's in a barrow. Right? And there's some dark rocks, presumably, around the barrow. The three hobbits had dashed past the rocks when suddenly they all became shut off. Cut off. That is, in the barrow downs, are we talking about so when the hobbits were dashing around, getting lost in the fog, they passed the dark rocks where the barrow with Bilbo's ringmail was. So, does this mean that Gandalf is going to tell him, or Bilbo is going to tell him? Anyway, some explanations are going to occur, right? Which is going to say so. Um, Bilbo lost his mail coat in a barrow. Yeah, it's a barrow with these dark rocks, and the hobbit and B- Bingo is going to be like, oh, dang it. I remember those dark rocks, right? We ran right past those dark rocks in the fog. Yeah, right, uh, you know, right when we... Then we were suddenly, you know, all, you know, separated in the fog and everything. Gandalf had sent the water down with Elrond's permission. Okay, so there we go. So, um, again. Does it mean now, Matthew? That's a great... uh, That's a great... um, uh, That's a great explanation. I love that. Um... See, Nancy, I too was thinking of the dozing-in-his-chair Bilbo that we get in the published version, right? But Matthew has a different idea. Um, Sleeping Bilbo, right? What if Bilbo has been captured by a white and he's sleeping in a barrow? And the ringmail has something to do with it, right? Because the ringmail was coveted by the white or whatever... Uh yeah, <laughs> Karita says that's a better story. Yeah, Corita, you're right. That's a better story than Bilbo falling asleep in his chair. <laughs> right? I totally agree. There's a little bit more to it, uh, uh, right there. Um, so, uh, and I agree, Karita, Just finding somebody's coat. I mean, it's so. Uh, I mean, if they get to Rivendell and the next thing is like, dang it, I lost my coat. Could you go find my coat for me? I mean, even if it's in a barrow and therefore dangerous to recover the coat, it's. Uh, it's not... Uh, yeah, so Ben is thinking maybe the ringmail protected him from being killed, so he's only asleep. Maybe. Maybe. I'm liking this idea. Matthew, I think you're onto something. I love it. Um, uh, consultation of the Hobbits with Elrond and Gandalf. About what is uncertain. Now, uh, we shouldn't jump ahead of ourselves with the quest for the Fiery Mountain. Um, we don't... I mean, I... I we can't get too far ahead of ourselves, we don't know for sure what that means, right? Especially in this context where the ring is not mentioned even once, right? In this whole thing. Something about Bilbo's mail and Barrows and falling asleep, right? And uh, consultation and and discussion and explanations, right? And astonishment, but nothing about rings. Um, Fascinating to me, in fact, that Bingo's ring is not mentioned anywhere in this whole thing. Right, in this whole outline. Um, does this in fact have anything to do with the rings? The ring wraiths are wearing rings, right? But do they actually care about Bingo's ring? Um uh, Anyway, I, I that's I think it's uh uh it's it's interesting, and Yana, exactly as you say, there hasn't even been given a real reason to destroy the ring, right? We know that the necromancer might want it back, and he may be ticked off that uh, uh, that he uh, you know, he may get ticked off that that he doesn't have it back, right? And he may exact some penalty, uh, like your soul. But he 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 doesn't again. There's no there's no sense of like it's it's imperative for some reason to uh, uh, to make sure that the ring gets destroyed. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway. But it's interesting um, uh, that uh, <clears throat> we have w- what was in his mind when he wrote that, right? What was the quest for the fiery the quest of the fiery mountain? Does he even know right? I don't know but uh, but it's interesting. it's very cool. okay um, a few notes <clears throat> from Christopher Tolkien here still barrow White related. A first version of the barrow White's incantation was rejected and replaced by the form that appears in the Fellowship of the Ring, but the changes made were very slight except in line 7, where for till the dark lord lifts his hand uh so remember the the um uh uh the, it's it's the ending of the of the barrow White's incantation uh till the dark lord lifts his hand over dead sea and withered land. Um uh Anyway, so the first version had, "'Till the king of the dark tower lifts his hand.'" In the rough workings for this verse, my father wrote, "'The dark lord sits in the tower "'and looks over the dark seas and the dark world, "'and also his hand stretches over the cold sea "'and the dead world.'" This, I think, is very, very suggestive. Um... Exactly Arthur that has always been a question which i think is really in the in the poem as it stands in the published text i think it's totally it's really open to interpretation who's the dark lord right is the white talking about sauron is the white talking about morgoth right um i i and honestly i think my money would have been on morgoth frankly but Till the king of the dark tower lifts his hand. That's that's Sauron. That's got to be Sauron, right? And I don't just mean because of Barad-dur, to which there's been no reference yet, right? Um, what I mean is he's always at a tower, right? I mean, if there's one thing that Sauron is, fa- it's, it's Sauron has like a kind of real estate that he likes, right? And he's liked it since the first age. He had a dark. Ta- he he he. know, we know he's going to build Barad-dur in Mordor eventually. He had a dark tower in Mirkwood when he was the necromancer. Uh, uh, there's references to him building a dark tower in Tower Nufuin back when Huan and Luthien kick him out of the other dark tower that he had, right? The tower, which was Minas Tirith and then became, um, uh, uh, uh Tolan Gaurhoth. So Sauron's all about the dark towers, right? That's totally his thing. Um, so, uh, uh, So, yeah, I mean, exactly. There's some people who like, you know, ranches and there are some people who like colonials. Sauron likes towers. This is his thing. Um, It's clear. Morgoth never lived in it. Did Morgoth ever live in a tower? Even once? I don't think so. Right. Morgoth is in the mountains. Right. He likes more of the subterranean deal. Right. Right. But, uh, but, but yeah, so clearly, 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 clearly the Barrow White is referring to Sauron, to the Necromancer, which of course he would, right? If he's a Ringwraith and therefore under the dominion of the Necromancer, of course he's talking about the Necromancer, right? Obviously. Um, uh, where is the Dark Lord's tower, Brandon? I I would see, uh, well, okay, a couple things here. First, where is his Dark Tower? Mirkwood. He's been kicked out of that, it's true, but maybe he's going to come back to his tower. We don't really know. Um, but, Brandon, as far as the second half of your question, where is there a dark tower that looks out over dark seas in a dark world? There isn't yet. Right? Remember the incantation, the end of the incantation is a prophecy by the Barrow White of what is to come. Right? Um, so, presumably, either A whichever tower sauron happens to be occupying at the moment is going to be looking out over a dead sea, a cold sea and a dead world eventually right if the prophecy of the barrow-white comes true or when the rule of the dark lord is completed he's going to build himself his final best most upgraded dark tower which will be, Brandon, no doubt conveniently located next to a dark cold sea uh, for the greater convenience of looking over it, as clearly waterfront property is one of the things you look for in a dark tower if you were a dark world. Uh, so there you are. Um. Yeah, yeah, so... It's all good. So anyway, so that was just a really—it's uh, a small point, but to me an interesting one. Again, it clearly fits in this world. Now, I say, you know, about the the identity between the Barrowites and the Ringwraiths, which we were looking at last time. That's not going to stick around. Obviously, it's not going to stick around forever, right? It's not around in the published version. It's not gonna even even going to stick around very long, right? Um. Uh. So uh, let's uh, let's let's look how this uh, carries on. So this is now the four version of the, of the, the latter Tom Bombadil story, the Barrow down story uh, that, uh, that Tolkien is now writing out. But I cannot say for certain, Tom is not master of the riders that come out of the Blackland far beyond his country. All the same, the hobbits wished that Tom was coming with them. They felt that he would know how to deal with them. If anyone did. They were now at last going forward into lands wholly strange to them, and beyond all but the most distant legends of the Shire, and they began to feel really lonely, exiled, and rather helpless. But Tom was now wishing them a final farewell, bidding them have good heart and ride till dark without halting. Um, Two things, I think, that we can see, uh, that we can see, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) <laughs> Corita wants uh a realtor to f- post a fake page with a listing for the dark tower uh that uh that Sauron will one day uh occupy. Karita that's that has to happen. Um uh w- w- we we must actually do this. Anyway, sorry. Um two main points that I would make about about this passage here. Um first, notice what's happened, right? As Tolkien has actually, as he moved from his plot projection to actually writing out this chapter, the Black Riders have changed. Black Riders aren't Barrowites anymore, right? <clears throat> That's new. When they first met Tom Bombadil, remember Tom Bombadil was all like, "What the heck are the Barrowdowns doing? The, the Whites doing wandering around the Shire, right?" Uh, now, not anymore, right? Now suddenly we have, um, uh, we have. Tom is not master of the riders that come out of the Blackland far beyond his country. Um. Yeah. Um. Now, a good question, John. John says, has Tolkien moved calling the Shire? The Shire, at this point, it's interesting that Blackland here is capitalized when other locations haven't yet gotten that significance... Um, well, I'd say two things there, John. First, your first question: uh, Yes, we saw at the beginning that he didn't do it instantly, right? But I think he does do it fairly, um, uh, fairly. I think I think he's there by now, calling it the Shire, uh, most distant legends of the Shire. We can see it right here in this paragraph. Um, but um, but the Black Land, right? Uh, two things here. I hate to do this two weeks in a row. Uh, Christopher points out that the name Mordor exists, right? It's already been written. It's there. It appears for the first time in the fall of Numenor, one of the drafts of the fall of Numenor. Um, So we, 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 we saw this in The Lost Road. The idea that Sauron has his home base in Mordor, which means the Blackland, right? It's just like, a, this, is, this is a literal translation of Mordor. So the fact that that's a literal translation of Mordor leads Christopher to suggest, so likely, at least probable, that he's referring to Mordor not yet by that name, but, you know, sort of in translation here. Maybe, but let me just again throw out that possibility that I was throwing out last time? Maybe not. Right? Or maybe not clearly yet. Um, maybe it's significant that Tom says the Blackland and not Mordor here. Right? Uh, maybe the Black Land, Maybe at this moment the Blackland is not yet Mordor. Um, maybe that identification has not fully been... Maybe, again, this is just him recycling a concept rather than him actually connecting this story of the Necromancer and of Sauron to the story of the Necromancer and Sauron that he had done earlier on. Um, the Sauron of the Numenor story was always the same Sauron, the same Necromancer, um, as in the earlier ver- the same Necromancer, the same dude that Luthien and Huan kicked out of his tower. Um, that's been... He's, from the beginning, the same. But that's because... The fall of Numenor, as we discussed in the Lost Road class, was conceived as essentially a sequel to the Silmarillion material he'd already written, to the mythology he'd already written. So it's very explicitly in the same world, right? And so he chooses Sauron as like the surviving bad guy uh, when Morgoth is 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 in the nick, right? So um, they, they they again that it's conceived of as a continuous world. I don't think the evidence yet shows that he's conceiving of this world as continuous, as a sequel to that earlier story in the same way that the fall of Numenor was a sequel to, you know, the Quintus Silmarillion. Um, so, uh, so yeah, Diego, I, I suspect maybe Tolkien isn't sure himself. That seems entirely, that seems entirely possible. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it's I, I would I I think it's still possible that he's that he's recycling there. It's not yet clear that he's drawn that identity that he's made it continu- con- continuous in that same way. Maybe he has. Maybe he's m- going there. We know he's going to get there, right? So it's going to happen sooner or later. Um. Which is why I am particularly keenly looking for those moments, right? Um, when he makes those connections, uh, you know, I'm like, "Is this it? Is this the moment? Right? Can we see it happening here? Maybe here, but uh, th- to me, the evidence is still not yet. I'm not. I'm not totally convinced uh, by this. Um, but one thing that is clearly happening: the world is getting bigger, right? Notice he emphasizes the perception of, um, he notices the perception of, um, bigness of the world, right? By the shires, they began to feel really lonely, exiled, and rather helpless. They were now at last going forward into lands wholly strange to them, and beyond all but the most distant legends of the shire. Um, you know, we, we talked last time about the fact that one of the effects of making the Black Riders, of identifying the Black Riders with the Barrow Whites, was to make the whole world seem smaller. Right? If uh, if the Ringwraiths under the power of the Necromancer were based next door to the Shire, right? It's just like the old forest in between the Shire, in, in between Buckland and the home base of the evil guys, right? Um, the whole story becomes kind of a parochial sort of thing. A, 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 parochial is unfair. Small scale, anyway. right? Um, clearly, as the story is actually unfolding in prose, it doesn't stay that way. right? We get this sense of um, going forward into lands wholly strange. This is an interesting passage, I think, to put next to that passage in chapter 2, when Bilbo first comes into these same lands right, and finds himself in lands that are strange. Um, the emphasis here, I think, is quite different. Right. Remember in The Hobbit, it just says things like, uh, you know, where people sang songs Bilbo had never heard before. Right. That's a little bit less, uh, you know, visceral, a sense of like exile and loneliness. Right. Exile. Bilbo never feels exiled. Right. He's going there and back again. Um, He's never lonely. He's in the middle of a castle of dwarves. Right. Uh, Anyway, it's just it's a very different experience. That sense of, you know, being beyond all but the most distant legends of the Shire. Bilbo goes beyond all but the most distant legends of the Shire, but he never feels like that, right? We are never made to feel like that about Bilbo's journey, but we are here. Um, so at the same moment that the Whites and the, the Black Riders are now separate, firmly separated, right? And so therefore they're more remote. There's some Black land out there, right? where they come from and now the hobbits are going kind of vaguely towards it, at least away from their safe place, right? And into this completely unknown, indeed, historically unknown place, right? So we have the, the, the bigness of the world, the danger of the world. Um, and that also increases right now. Tom Bombadil can't even command them anymore. The black riders, right? Um, you know, what Tom is saying now they're, they're, they're out of his jurisdiction, right? He can't, uh, um, uh, he can't command them anymore. That's gone. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Kate, good. Kate, again, thinking about the Black Land issue, says that uh, uh, it still seems that Tolkien is writing a Hobbit sequel, not a Silmarillion appendage. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and Kate, why not? because he's still trying to get the Silmarillion published, right? This isn't, this isn't like a sequel to this, you know, he's, he's not, uh, uh, in writing The Fall of Numenor, he was adapting the Silmarillion story, or he's not adapting the Silmarillion story here, he's still trying to get that thing published. Um, Okay, let's keep going. When our four hobbits at last rode into Bree, they were very glad. The inn door was open. It was a large round door leading into the side of Bree Hill, at which the road turned, looping to the right, and disappearing, and disappeared into the darkness. Light streamed into the road from the door, over which there was a lamp swinging, and beneath that was a sign, a fat white pony standing on his hind legs. Over the door was painted in white letters, The Prancing Pony by Barnabas Butterbur. Someone was singing a song inside. Uh... Um. Let's pause for a couple things on this first paragraph. First of all, um, I can't help but notice this when I read it aloud. This is, by the way, one of the little Easter eggs that uh, uh, you can only notice when you read Tolkien's prose aloud. Did you hear? Someone was singing a song inside, right? Hear all the s's, right? Uh, the not only the alliteration, but the, the that that's. That's that's like pure Tolkien is always sensitive to those things. Someone was singing a song inside. Um, It just it just it just rolls out. Um, But anyway, yep, we have indeed caught up with the uh, that we don't know anything about Barnabas Butterbur, but I suspect he's going to be jolly, right? And uh, and sure enough, yep, first thing we see is a drinking song going on inside. Now, Arthur, great observation. When Our Four Hobbits... That is a very different style, a very different narrative style. We haven't gotten that exactly before. But, of course, it is more different from the published version than it is from earlier passages, right? Um, The more kind of lighthearted, more uh, intrusive-voiced narrator of the early chapters of The Hobbit... Is uh, of the Lord of the Rings rather is still going strong here, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, right, and it, good, good, yeah, very good. James was just noticing the uh, that of course, we the whole thing is like the whole end of that paragraph is this uh, sort of cascade of, of alliteration. Right, the prancing pony by Barnabas Butterbur. Someone was singing a song inside. Um, I, I, I'm not trying to uh, to make a a big huge deal out of it. It's just Tolkien being playful, I think. Um, being playing with this, you know, just being able to kind of hear Tolkien playing with the sound of words, um, in ways which seem to me wholly characteristic of uh, uh of of the. Um, just of of his style, but anyway, okay, we'll carry on. As the hobbits got off their ponies, the song ended, and there was a burst of laughter. Definitely a drinking song. Bingo stepped inside and nearly bumped into the largest and fattest hobbit that he had ever set eyes on in all his days in the well-fed shire. It was obviously Mister Butterbur himself. He had a white he had on a white apron and was scuttling out of one door and in through another with a tray full of mugs. Can we said Bingo. Half a minute, if you please, the landlord shouted over his, his shoulder and vanished into a babble of voices and a cloud of smoke beyond the door. In a moment, he was out again, wiping his hands on his apron. Good evening, master, he said. What may you be wanting? Um, Butterbur is a hobbit. The Prancing Pony is a hobbit inn. Bree is a, an entirely hobbit town. There are no men anywhere here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that's a thing that's happening <laughs> here, right? Um, what are the implications of this? What do we make of this? I find it particularly curious, especially given what I was just pointing out in the previous slide, right, as the Hobbits have passed the barrow downs in a sense, the barrow downs the barrow downs were pretty scary, right? It was a freaky place. But it was a homey, freaky place, right? It's 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 a known danger. They had at least heard stories and rumors about the Barrow Downs, right? So it was a danger they'd vaguely heard of before, uh, and were in going there and almost getting killed, uh, confirming or even in a sense participating in Shire legends, right? Now they're in terra incognita, man, right? They're out there, lonely. Exile in the big, wide, scary world. So what's the first thing they find? A Hobbit Town with a Hobbit Inn and a fat Hobbit Innkeeper who's particularly jolly. Right? Um That's fascinating. Yeah, Nick exactly. Nick Marazzo says they've they've come home again to a hobbit town. That's to me exactly the effect. It's a powerful effect. Uh, the prancing pony it's homey already I mean it's or I should say it's still homey right in the uh, um, uh in the published fellowship of the ring right um I dare say it will be homelike enough is in fact something that they actually say about it in the published in the published Fel- fellowship of the ring um the homeliness of the of Butterbur's house is something that is escalated is increased in um uh, in the original draft right um when he got when he gets to brie remember he envisioned brie right we had the jolly innkeeper and in the drinking song so he knew he was coming here he didn't have anything planned at least in that outline he didn't have anything planned for brie uh, other again with the always noteworthy exception of the drinking song he had nothing planned um but uh when he gets there he decides to make it a to make it a hobbit town to make it more home like um now it's um uh yeah it's um i don't know what to do with it frankly you know uh does it does it shrink the world back down again? Is it why does he do it? Why does he give them a hobbit town and a hobbit inn? And a you know, like a happy hobbit place full of jolly fat hobbits, right? Well, okay, one jolly fat hobbit. Other perhaps more modest sized, but still jolly hobbits, right? Most of them are. I mean, there's, of course, a significant exception to the jollity, but, um, uh, but still. Um. How does this fit? What role does this play in the story that we, um... Does it get now Diego suggests maybe it does make sense. You know, while uh, uh, you know, so sort of he's making the world bigger. There are other Hobbit settlements. You know, afterwards it becomes an amalgamation of men and hobbits, making the transition between big and little people. Um, Diego, yeah, I agree. In the published Fellowship of the Ring, Bree is like a, uh, it's like a halfway house, right? Uh, you know, it, it is. It's like halfway between the Shire and Rivendell. Right, so um, it's not exactly geographically halfway, but 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 still, it's it's the transitional point. Just as the in the Hobbit, the last homely house is on the edge of the wild, right. So when you get past Elrond's house, you're in the wild, right, uh, where you can expect any any manner of hair raising thing to happen to you. Um, we add this intermediary stage in the Lord of the Rings, right, where it's transitional between the Shire and Rivendell. Um, It's got some big things about it, but it's got small things. It's got big people and it's got small people, right? Um, It's familiar in part, but foreign in part to the hobbits as they're traveling through. Um, That is not the role of Brie in this original conception, right? Not so directly in any case, but could it be transitional in a different sense? right that is they are out in strange and foreign territory and what do they find more hobbits other hobbits does this suggest that the shire where it is not really the sort of the epicenter of hobbitry that they like to think of it as um you know are we supposed to see this as this indication or hint that there's a like there's a there's there, there's another shire over here Right, which is different, and maybe with some cultural differences, but it's separate, and they never communicate at all, and in effect, not even aware of each other. You know, again, this seems, this seems uh, possible, possible that that's what he had in mind, and that would Diego, as you're suggesting, um, on the one hand, it's a return to smallness, but it's, in a sense, it's almost more alien, right? Having left the shire and the you know the having left hobbit lands behind, they're expecting to find if, if they found a settlement of men right that wouldn't have surprised them. They w- they expected that now that they've left the land of hobbits behind that they're going to find uh, any number of strange creatures right. Um, in a sense, the last thing they would be expecting to find is another hobbit country, right? Another hobbit town. Um. Uh, you know, So maybe it, it kind of informs or uh, uh, kind of characterizes their view of the world. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think it's uh, interesting, anyway. Um, and, uh, yeah, Kate, absolutely. We don't see, we don't have men in this part of the world, just hobbits hobbits uh, on the way to elves. Yeah, absolutely. It's all, it's all we get. Or rather, Kate, the only men that we get... Are dead ones, <laughs> right? They've been dead for a long time. The Barrow Whites and the lady with the brooch, right? So there's there's humans. Presumably they're human, um, but um, but not, uh, uh, not uh, not uh, running around. So that's okay. Um, yeah. So anyway, I I you know it is my theory about the you know the meeting a foreign country of hobbits, correct? Uh, you know, is it going to change their view of the world in some way? I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Maybe may, maybe not. Maybe it's still just designed to be transitional, right? So that it's both strange and familiar at the same time, right? It can be all hobbits and still be strange and familiar. Uh, even the very fact that there are hobbits there could be, in a sense, strange, as, a, as I said. Um, but, but there is no question, Bree was a pure hobbit town and Butterbur was a hobbit um, at, uh, at the beginning. Um, yeah, yeah. And Tim, I agree. Um, uh, Tim says it still tells me that Tolkien is thinking in terms of a sequel to The Hobbit with Hobbits as the sort of the primary horizon. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, Bilbo, of course, got past Hobbit realms fairly quickly. Uh, but, um, but, but yeah, um, Okay, let's, let's 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 carry on. This is uh, Butterbur, of course. But there he went on. I dare say there are lots of queer names and queer folk that we've never heard of in these parts. That's they've just introduced themselves with their weird names, right like Mister Green and Mister Brown. We don't see so many Shire folk in these days. Time was when the Tooks now often c- came along to have a crack with me or my old dad. Where good people were the Tooks. They say they had Bree blood in them and were not quite like other Shire folk, but I don't know the rights of it. But there, I must be running off. That's fun, right? Uh, I, love the, um, I love the alternative uh, 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 history of the Tooks, right? Um, on the one hand, what do we see, right? We see that um, the perspective of the hobbits in Brie Seem to be, um, well, on the one sense, different from the Shire hobbits, in the sense that they are familiar with the Shire hobbits, but the Shire hobbits don't even seem to know about Bree, right? Um, so, uh, that's different, and yet there's that there's still that sense of uh, parochialism, right? Um, those Shire folk are queer people right and we've seen that attitude towards people who live in in foreign parts from the beginning here right um but the idea um the idea that this is the origin the true origin of turkishness right that turks are different from other families because they have bree blood in them uh is uh kind of awesome actually uh are we getting a glimpse of the true story? Remember the story. That, that there's there's another alternative version, right? What's the other version? What? Uh, why are the why are the Took's so weird? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's a story that one of the Took's had taken a fairy wife, Remember, married an elf. There's elf blood in the Took's. Um, that's in the Hobbit. Right? That one of the Tooks had taken a fairy wife. Now the narrator immediately says, that was of course absurd. Right? Um, the That theory, that there's elvish blood in the Tooks, is dismissed out of hand by the narrator in The Hobbit. But no alternative is ever given. Right? So... Um... You know, maybe it was really Bree blood all along, and uh, that could lead to the story of the fairy wife. Right? Huh? Right? So, like, a strange foreign wife from foreign parts. She must be some kind, you know, she she must be a, an elf. She must be a fairy to people who didn't know anything about elves or fairies. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know. That story kind of has legs, uh, Butterbur. I think that could really work. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. I I, I like it. Um, another thing Well, actually, hang on. Let me go back to this for a second. One of the things that really struck me this time through. We talked... Week before? Last? Last week? When was it? Anyway. Recently, we talked about the Hobbitry. Right? Um... The hobbitry that Tolkien said that he had to be careful to resist ind- overindulging in, right, that he, that him used him no end and Christopher too, apparently, but, um, uh, but he was advised against overindulgence in hobbitry, right, by both C.S. Lewis and, and Rainer Unwin. Um, we're still getting it, right? All of a sudden, it becomes <laughs> perfectly clear in this first draft, but everything about Butterbur. Butterbur's whole dialogue. It's hobbitry, right? It's hobbit talk. Um, Tolkien is really amused by hobbit talk. Butterbur was a hobbit. Butterbur's talk is hobbit talk, right? All the things that happen in the end. In fact, like the whole episode, the whole episode at and in the end is a hobbitry episode, right? Um, in the later drafts, what does he do? How does Tolkien cut back on the hobbitry? He just takes, he just takes the characters, turns them into men, and leaves it, right? Well, if Butterbur is human, it's not hobbitry anymore, is it? Not, it's not hobbit talk. It's just an innkeeper talk. It's all good, right? Um, I just think that's really funny. I, 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 you know, the fact that it's word for word the hobbit talk of the first uh, edition. Uh sneaky. Isn't that sneaky, Nancy? Like it's like, oh yeah, no, no more I, I promise. Less less Hobbit talk. Less Hobbit talk, yeah. No problems. Um Yeah, yeah. And Brandon, exactly. Brandon says that Tolkien seems to know he's getting carried away. Uh he has Butterbur catch himself. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um yeah, yeah. Uh but there, I must be running off, right? Can't overindulge in Hobbit Talk, sorry. Yeah. Okay, oh, darn, I did it again. Um, the need for secrecy. Remember, this happened midstream, right? Um, in the commentary, Christopher explains that um, in, the, in the draft as first written, when the four, when Bingo introduces himself and the four friends, he gives their right names, right? And Tolkien writes in the margin, right? No, no they should conceal their names. Right, because it's important to keep, to keep secret. Right. So here's the version. Then that, that it. Uh, uh, well, no, this is not, not quite that yet. Anyway, so so they need to be. They need to be secret. They need to conceal their identities. Why? Why? Why should they do that? What's become so urgent about that? Why does that matter? Come back to that in a second. Let's read the passage here. Um, This is, of course, their fateful decision to go into the common room. Mary said he thought it would be too stuffy. I shall either sit here quietly by the fire, or else go out for a snuff of air outside. Mind your P's and Q's, and don't forget that you are supposed to be escaping in secret, and are Mr. Hill, Mr. Green, and Mr. Brown. All right, they said. Mind yourself. Don't get lost, and don't forget that it is safest indoors. Then they went and joined the company in the big meeting room of the inn. Um Okay. What's their attitude here? Here's what I'm trying to get at. Again, It's easy for us to think in terms of the published story as we come to know it, right? But just trying to keep ourselves within the story as we've learned it so far, right? Within that framework, what is the need for secrecy exactly? And how is that need for secrecy expressed? On the one hand, it's similar. It's expressed similarly to the need for secrecy in the published book, right? Um, In their disguising of their names, Though, of course, in this sense, the secrecy seems to be even greater, right, um, than in the published because it's only Frodo's name which is concealed in the, in the published book. Here, all four of them go by fake names, um, which they're supposed to remember. Um, why is there that much need of secrecy? However, they're going to go hang out with everybody and sing, and, and sing drinking songs and tell story in the common room of the inn. So there's obviously not that much need for secrecy. Right? Now, again, I know that like memories of the published story are going to intrude. Um of course we know Frodo and 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 Sam and Pippin are going to go into the common room of the inn as well, right? And they know they have need of secrecy. Um but it's I think, anyway, to me, it sounds different. In the published Fellowship of the Ring, the choice to go into the common room of the inn is a disastrously foolish choice. I called it the fateful choice. That's a that's a published that's a published Fellowship of the Ring thing. I don't get the sense at all. From this, that it's, um, I don't get the sense at all that it's a, uh, um, a fateful decision here or colossally foolish. Why wouldn't they go into the common room? Especially, remember, it's a hobbit inn, right? They're surrounded by hobbits a black rider is not going to be hiding in the crowd. None of these hobbits are very likely to be allied to a black rider who may or may not be a barrel White, right? So, you know, what's the harm? Why not go into the common room? Why not hang out with the company, right? Um, again, it doesn't seem like there's anything... now. Uh, But yet, they insist on secrecy, right? They insist that... And they have to hide their names from the other hobbits, right? So why, on the one hand, do they feel no qualms uh, about going into the common room, right? And yet, they feel like they have to disguise their names, right? Do you see what I mean? Do you see what I mean about the kind of, like... I'm not sure I'm getting I'm not sure I'm fully, fully comprehending exactly where the need for secrecy stands at this stage of the story. Yes, it's true as Diego and, and and others were reminding me Nick as well. We do know that the Black Riders the Dark Riders were looking for 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 Baggins, right? Y- yes. They were looking for Bilbo, right? And his name is, Bingo's name is Bolterbaggins, Baggins, so, you know, they'll probably be connected to him as well. Uh, um, but why change the name of Mr. Brandybuck and, you know, of Mary and of, you know, Odo and Frodo? Why, why, why do that? Why do that? Um, why do they have to mind their P's and Q's? What are they trying to conceal? Exactly. What does he mean by mind your P's and Q's? What P's and Q's are he supposed to mind? What's he afraid they're going to say? Um, I don't really know. I'm not really sure. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Brian, I, I completely agree with you. That's exactly what, from everything we've seen so far... That's exactly where I'm coming at this scene from. Brian Dimick says, we have no reason to think the Black Riders would be work, working with local people or have eyes in the inn. Absolutely none. Absolutely none. Um, in fact, even if we do think it, it seems totally implausible. Now, Stephen says, is there any idea of rumors from the Shire and just not wanting a fuss made? Well, there was the, the secret departure after the, the party, right, in chapter one if they're trying to preserve their identities, all of their identities from somebody, presumably the person they're trying to, the, or people they're trying to conceal them from are not the black riders um, who wouldn't know or care about, you know, Odo, Frodo, and, 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 uh, 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 and, and, and Mary at the least, but the other hobbits, the hobbits of the Shire, right? They don't want rumor to get back to the people in the Shire where they went or where they could be found, maybe something like that. Um. so yeah, Brian is saying with, with, they would be worried that Bingo's joke would be spoiled if their identities were revealed since news would be uh, w- w- would be likely or at least possible to get back to the Shire um, yeah, even you know, Brian, even Mary's phrasing here, the mind your P's and Q's thing, sounds almost more like, you know wink wink, don't give the joke away Right, uh, remember we're supposed to be escaping in secret um, that line remember don't forget that you are supposed to be escaping in secret doesn't sound at all to me like your life may depend upon your discretion right that doesn't sound like what he's mind your p's and Q's don't forget you're supposed to be escaping in secret um, it's part of the joke uh, that kind of uh, that's that's what it sounds like to me. Um, Mary is the one who is told right, they tell him mind yourself, don't get lost and don't forget that it's safest indoors he, him there they seem to be cautioning about black riders right um, because if he's wandering around outside at night on the road, he could meet a, a black rider, right that's where the black riders are, they're not in the company of the inn but they're out on the road, right and he, and he might—and remember Mary's never met he saw one maybe from a distance but he's, he's never met them Right? So he might underestimate them. He might not really know. Um, So, so yeah, so he says to them, don't give your identities away, and they say to him, watch out for black riders. And I don't think, it's not obvious to me that there's any connection between those two things in this version of the story. Maybe. Maybe. um, But I don't see any necessary reason to, uh, to believe that. But of course there is one ominous figure, right? The stranger with the wooden shoes. Suddenly Bingo noticed that a queer looking brown faced hobbit, sitting in the shadows behind the others, was also listening intently. He had an enormous mug, more like a jug, in front of him, and was smoking a broken stemmed pipe right under his rather long nose. He was dressed in dark, rough brown cloth, and had a hood on, in spite of the warmth, and, very remarkably, "'He had wooden shoes!' "'Bingo could see them sticking out under the table in front of him. "'Who's that over there?' said Bingo, "'when he got a chance to whisper to Mr. Butterbur. "'I don't think you introduced him.' "'Him?' said Barnabas, cocking an eye without turning his head. "'Oh, that's one of the wild folk. Rangers, we call him. "'He's been coming in now and again, in autumn and winter mostly, "'the last few years, but he seldom talks. "'Not but what he can tell some rare tales when he has a mind, "'you take my word.' What his right name is I never heard, but he's known round here as Trotter. You can hear him coming along the road in those shoes, quit or clap, when he walks on a path which isn't often. Why does he wear them? Well, that I can't say. But there ain't no accounting for east or west, as we say here, meaning the rangers and the shire folk, begging your pardon. Uh... Now, if that doesn't blow your shoes off, I don't know what's going to, right? This is one of those passages, uh, you know, in that category of, of passages in, in The Return of the Shadow that I was talking about before. One of those which is almost exactly like the published text, right? Uh, you know, intimately familiar, except in this case, wholly foreign at the same time, right? This is ex- same conversation, same words, same phrases, same names, Almost, right? Except totally, completely different context. Um, the ranger, uh, who can tell a rare tale when he talks, but is isn't often, uh, and uh, who's always going about and there's no accounting for East or West, and uh, uh, is A, a hobbit, B, a hobbit with wooden shoes, and C, um uh named Trotter not yet Strider. Uh for my money by the way Trotter is worse than Bingo. I could have lived with Bingo instead of Frodo before I could have lived with Trotter instead of Strider. Just 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 for the record. <laughs> my personal list of names I'm super glad that Tolkien decided to change as he went on has Trotter right at the very very top. I I, I have to tell you. Um but uh um. yeah, Nancy says uh, you know, okay, but somehow when he's a hobbit, that description becomes kind of adorable yeah, Nancy, it's almost exactly the same description, right um, except he's not anymore drinking a comically huge drink uh, which is kind of a nice touch, I can't help but think um, uh, yeah, yeah um, okay, all right well No, you got me, Ben. You're totally right. Um uh I was thinking about um I was thinking about the Lord of the Rings specifically, but you're right, if you include the Hobbit, I would put Bloodorthin up above Trotter. Yeah. Uh, Bledorthin, of course, was Gandalf's original name, uh, and he is Bledorthin all the way through the entire first half of the book. Um, He doesn't become Gandalf until he shows up at the Lonely Mountain again at the end. Um, uh, He's Bledorthin all the way through. Uh, So I'm awful glad we shifted from from Bledorthin to Gandalf. But within a Lord of the Rings context, Trotter is my my least favorite. Um... uh, and, uh, okay, why don't I like it? Carita wants to know. No, it's not because of pigs. Um, I'm fine with the pig's foot thing. I'm, uh, uh, is it just because it's unlovely? No, it's because it's silly. That's what I don't like about it. I can't take it seriously. Because horses can trot with a certain amount of dignity, right? Bipeds can't. Bipeds cannot trot with dignity. I'm sorry. I, 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 I They can't. Um, it's just not a thing that they can do. And you can tell. Because right away like, could clap? No. No, I'm sorry. I can't respect somebody who is called Trotter because he goes could clap down the road. Right? I, I just... No, <laughs> no, I can't. I can't. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's too, uh, it's, it's just too silly. Um, that's why. That's why. Um, Kate says it seems a bit small for an important character, a pony, where one wants a thoroughbred. Yeah. Now, of course, Kate, obviously, Tolkien can be forgiven as, obviously, he doesn't know how big of a character this is going to be, right? I mean, if at this moment, if the moment after Tolkien had written that paragraph, right, when he got to this point that we're talking about in the draft, if you had stopped him and said to him, okay, 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 Toller's, that guy, right, the guy that Bingo's about to meet in the bar, right, He's going to be in the title, like he's going to be one of one of the titular characters of this entire work. I, I, I think Tolkien would have been pretty surprised, right? Pretty pretty darn surprised. Uh, so um, yeah yeah, I, I, that's so far off the off the the, the the threshold. Of course, they can't be blamed. But all right, um, for now. Though Kate, of course, he's a small character, right? He's a hobbit in Bree. Everyone's a hobbit in Bree. So they meet... Within this context, within the context of Bree as it's presented, and of course the larger context of the Shire as we've seen it, and Hobbit society and everything as we've gotten it in the Return of the Shadow* so far, Um, what do we have? We have something which... This is like... There are adventurous hobbits... And then there's Trotter, right? There's the Tooks. But it turns out the Tooks, they're adventurous, but they only sometimes get as far as Bree, right? Only only far enough as Bree for the sake of interbreeding, and that's all, and that's all, right? Trotter is in a completely different category, like literally a different category, uh, the, uh, uh, diametrically opposed to the Shire Hobbits, right? Because from a Bree perspective, that is from Butterbur's perspective, there, there ain't no accounting for East or West, right? The Shire Hobbits are West, um the the rangers cuz apparently trotter isn't the only one i don't know if the wooden shoes are part of the ranger uniform or what but but uh but anyway he is a different category and he's east right where the shire is west he's east right so he is he is even from a geographical standpoint um uh it's um He's he he's 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 the op- he's the diametrical opposite of the Shire Hobbits. Yeah, Brandon exactly. You'd said to, to Tolkien, Okay, this guy you just introduced is going to be the heir of Numenor and uh and like the majority of the Middle Earth that we see. Yeah, exactly. That does not really seem to be Trotter's likely destiny. Um Yeah, yeah. Um Yeah. <laughs> Matthew, you're on fire tonight. Matthew, that's a... I I don't think I ever would have made that connection, but once you've made it, it seems inescapable. (laughs) Matthew says, Trotter comes across less Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and more Crocodile Dundee. (laughs) Yes. Or Alan Quartermain. Yes, exactly. Um, No, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um... Now, Nancy, uh, speaking out in defense of Trotter, that she really loves the idea of wild ranger hobbits running around doing daring things. Um, Sure. No, I like it. I mean, the concept. And and again, now think about what we were just discussing about Hobbit Bree, right? Now, we do see, right? Notice Bree is now in a middle spot, right? Not between the Shire and Rivendell, right? Bree is now in the middle spot between the tame frankly boring Hobbits of the Shire and the Wild Hobbits of the East, right? So we have this glimpse of the, I mean, that phrase, right? I just said the phrase Wild Hobbits, right? Have you ever, ever formulated that phrase in your mind before? It's a little bit, it's a little when it comes out, it feels a little strange in the mouth, right? It's a weird phrase, but cool! Right, Nancy? I like it too. I think it's neat. Um, and um yeah and but yeah i know arthur the wooden shoes right i we'll have to we'll have to hold on for the wooden shoes um uh but uh yeah uh, see matthew there we go karita alexander says she now has her next halloween costume aragorn Dundee. good yeah <clears throat> done and done karita i look forward to that um but uh um oh yana who is actually dutch says that wooden shoes uh, hurt like he wouldn't believe. So there you are. Um, uh, wooden shoon, of course, is exactly what I mean, Carita. Um Yeah, so you're right, Stephen. We still don't know whether, whether whether the wooden shoes are a thing in the East or whether it's it's unique to Trotter himself. It sounds like it's unique to Trotter himself the way that Butterbird talks about it, right? You can hear him coming along the road in those shoes, right? And, the, and he seems to be giving that as an explanation for the... Uh, uh, for the uh, for the name, right? That's why it's called Trotter. <laughs> Keep right clicking. Um, all right. Well, he's um, he's not the only one who uh, has a has a, na- has a name change. Butterbur has one too, uh, but it's much earlier on. This is just sort of a, a really small note I wanted to make. Indeed, from one of Christopher Tolkien's notes, Barnabas Butterbur is written in ink over the original name in pencil, Timothy Titus. Timothy Titus was the name of the innkeeper in the underlying penciled text throughout the chapter. This was a name that survived from an old story of my father's, of which only a couple of pages exist, no doubt all that was ever written down, but that Timothy Titus bore no resemblance whatsoever to Mr. Butterbur." Um... Right, I don't know anything about Timothy Titus, so I have no, like, major comments to make. I just wanted to draw your attention to this as another example of this uh, this habit of Tolkien's, right? He's, he constantly recycles. He never lets anything go. I Kimber exactly reusing name once again. Context irrelevant. Yes, that is Tolkien's style, right? Um, and it's just, it's it's he just he just. <laughs> just does this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, Stephen, Stephen is just making a really geeky Bible joke, right? Timothy Titus was changed from his original name, Galatians Ephesians. If you don't get it, don't worry about it. That's I, it. It's a, it's a, uh, there's nothing quite like Pauline Epistle humor, Stephen, right? Um, but uh, yeah, anyway. Okay, sorry. So um, um, yeah, but again, so once again, clearly we can see this is this is this is how Tolkien thinks, right? His his uh, habit of uh, taking old concepts, names, and recycling them. This is he does this almost uh, uh, almost almost instinctively, right? Um, the songs. In the original text, where the song was to be the troll song, so the first song, that when, when Bilbo, in the first draft, Bilbo sang the Stone Troll Song, uh, what will become Sam's troll song. Uh, the comments of the audience on the cat and the fiddle are, of course, absent. Instead, after the company was not over particular, there followed, they made him have a drink and then sing it all over again. Much encouraged, Bilbo capered about on the table, and when he came a second time to his boot to bear where needed, he kicked in the air. Much too realistically, he overbalanced and fell. The line, his boot to bear where needed, is found in the version of the troll song written for this episode. Uh, So the first time that Bingo slips and falls off the table while singing his song, of course he's not emulating the cow jumping over the moon. Uh, he's doing something actually a good deal more sensible than that, which is pantomiming, uh, 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 giving the seat of the troll the boot. Uh, and he does so much to, uh, uh, much too realistically overbalances and falls. I'm sorry, I think Bilbo is a typo. I think it's bingo, capering about on the table. I think that it's probably... Uh, my typo there. Um, so yes, exactly. It's the image of the of a Hobbit miming kicking someone in the butt. Exactly. That's that's the original context of uh, Bingo slash Frodo falling off the table. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's uh, um, it's lovely. It's lovely, right? Um, uh, and We have to talk about it. Uh, No, no, we don't have to talk about it. Uh, We have to have a sing along. Are you ready? Because we we can't not do the sing along, right? After all, the very first slide promised a drinking song, right? And by golly, we get a drinking song, right? Um, We get a bonus singing. Someone inside sang a someone was singing a song inside at the beginning. Um, That was just a Bonus drinking song, right? We get a real drinking song by the end, uh, and so we're going to sing it. So this is The Root of the Boot. It's the original version of the Stone Troll uh, song. Now, here's what I want to think about. Uh, First of all, I want to think about how much fun this song is to sing. You have to sing it with me now. Keep in mind, right? Don't make me open your mics and make you sing with me, right? Um, I'm going to take it on faith. That you're singing along with me, but you'd better sing along. At the least you got to join in in the choruses because that's the point of the choruses, right? Um, so, uh, um, okay. So, th- the question at the end of the song, in addition to appreciating how much fun it is to sing, we're going to talk about why. Why? Why? Why this song, right? Yes, Tolkien was very fond of it, but he was very fond of a bunch of different songs. Right, um, uh, the relevance of the "Cat and the Fiddle" song seems more apparent. Right, it does at least have, as of course the prose context points out, uh, the irrelevance to recommend it. Right, um, why this? Why this? Oh, and uh, Patricia, you know we're going to be doing at least one troll song sing-along at Mythmoot, right? I mean, that almost, like, has to happen. I mean, there's going to be a fire pit. We're going to be singing around it. We're going to be singing the troll song. Like, this will, th- this will occur. Um, uh, uh, it's okay, Ben, if your family's asleep, sing quietly. It's okay to sing quietly. You don't have to belt it out. It's fine. Ready? You know the tune, right? Um, uh, I never learned the tune of this song until I heard Tolkien himself singing it. Uh, and as soon as I heard Tolkien himself singing it, there's a recording of this. Look for it, it's on YouTube. Um, you, then uh, th- uh, all of a sudden, everything that I never understood about the song suddenly made sense. Ready? A troll sat alone on a seat of stone and munched and mumbled a bare old bone. And long and long he sat there alone and seen no man nor mortal portal portal and long and long he had sat there lone and seen no man nor mortal up came tom with his big boots on hello says he pray what is yon it looks like the leg i mean uncle john as should be a lion in churchyard searchyard, yard it looks like the leg i mean uncle john as should be a lion in churchyard Young man, says the troll, that bone I stole, But what be bones when mayhap the soul In heaven on high hath an aureole As big and bright as a bonfire, On fire, yon fire, In heaven on high hath an aureole As big and bright as a bonfire says tom odds teeth tis my belief if bonfire there be tis underneath for old man john was as proper a thief as ever wore black on a sunday grande monday As uh, for old man john was as proper a thief as ever wore black on a sunday but still, I don't see what is that to thee, with me kith and me kin a making free. So go to hell and ax leave a. He- so sorry. So get to hell and ax leave a he afore thou knows me, nuncle, uncle, buncle. So get to hell and ax leave a he afore thou knows me, nuncle. In the proper place upon the base, Tom boots him right. But alas, that race hath a stonier seat than its stony face, so he rued that root on the rumpo. Lumpo Bumpo hath a stonier seat than its stony face, so he rued that root on the rumpo. Now Tom goes lame since home he came, and his bootless foot is grievous game. Patrol's old seat is much the same, and the bony bone from its owner donor, boner, but Troll's old seat is much the same, and the bony bone from its owner. All right. Um, uh, Stephen is suggesting that Tom would have been uh, uh, better off maybe uh, if he had been wearing wooden shoes. Um, uh, So this song is awesome, right? Now, this version of the song is the original version of the song. As uh, Christopher explains, it's the version of the song that is published in uh, uh, the Songs for the Philologists, which I still hold is probably the dorkiest publication of all time. Right? I don't think it's possible uh, to be uh, to, 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 to publish a dorkier book than Songs for the for the Philologists. Anyway, um, so... Okay. What's this song about? Notice, of course, you can easily notice some of the major differences between this version of the song and the version that Sam is eventually going to sing, uh, you know, in front of the, the Stone Trolls, right? Um, the number one, the sort of the biggest, most obvious difference is all of the Christian references, from the reference to, to the churchyard at the beginning, right, like you you know to, that you 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 must have dug up his grave from the churchyard uh, to um, uh, to the reference to halos, right? That that's what an aureole is, right? So if we go if we go back here, I gotta go back to near the beginning. Um, yes, in heaven on high hath an aureole as big and bright as a bonfire. So the troll's first move is to be like, hey. Uh, What are bones, right? Undoubtedly, your uncle, whose bone I'm currently gnawing, um, is is, is in heaven right now and has this big, huge halo that's as bright as a bonfire, right? Um, uh, And uh, Tom, somewhat surprisingly, says—and notice he says it with a curse—odd's teeth. That's that's blasphemy right there, Tom— Right, um, it's it's a uh, it's a uh, it's it's short for God's teeth. It, you know, by God's teeth, it's a it's a a fairly minor oath, uh, but you still would have gotten in trouble for it. Um, uh, but anyway, it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a uh, sort of a minor piece of blasphemy, right? Um, uh, anyway, so uh, so he's like, oh no, yeah, yeah, my uncle is obviously in hell, right? Um, uh, if bonfire there be, tis underneath, um, uh, because his he knows that his uh, his uncle was uh, was a, was a thief um, get to hell and axe Levi hes so, okay all that explicitly Christian stuff is uh, um, gone right in Sam's version so that, that, that that's gonna go as Tolkien revises it so you know and granting that and uh, uh, sadly Christopher's not giving us the full like all the intermediary stages right um he mentions to me somewhat tantalizingly that the version of the song that uh Tolkien was going to give to bingo is um uh you know includes that line that uh uh that 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 is quoted in the piece of prose there right that he did give us um, so it's clear that Tolkien did do a revised version of this for Bingo in the Prancing Pony, but that's not the version that he's giving us here. He's giving us the original version, right from the songs for the philologists. So uh, it would be cool to see every single version of it as it goes through. Okay, I think would think it would would think that was cool. Um, so I'm not quite sure how he is, uh, um, how he's growing it, right? How he's. Um, uh, um, developing the poem but given that we don't know that what do we know what can we see here um, why this poem why this poem see I, I ask why this poem because the answer because Tolkien liked it that is an answer right but it's not enough of an answer I don't think that any amount of fondness for this poem is going to make Tolkien just shoehorning a poem that he finds actively irrelevant or uh, totally unnecessary. Like, it's... Tolkien came to this moment and said, we're going to do a song. This one will work. He at least had a reason where, in his mind, he's like, this can work. right? Um... How? Why? Francis uh, Schmidt says it's a connection to Bilbo's adventures with the trolls. Francis, I think that's interesting, right? Um, Remember, we're still, as you know, Kate, as you were saying earlier on, we're still kind of in Hobbit sequel mode, right? So, um, a nice troll reference. And, of course, you'll remember, we know, Francis, that he's thinking about Bilbo's trolls. Right, we saw that in the plot outline that he did about them going to see the trolls, them going out of their way to see the trolls, and uh, that being a mistake because it delayed them, right, to make a side trip to go find the trolls. Um, so yeah, that seems to be kind of on the table. It may be, uh, it may be sort of that kind of that 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 kind of association. Um, uh, Good yeah Carson was thinking of a, a sort of a, a similar a similar thing um, good actually several of you were very good very good um, that uh, I think at least that um, that sort of does it here's another thing I, this song seems to me to fit not just the story, not just the plot that in the sense that like again with the trolls and and the the soon to be relevant cuz the the next step will be the stone trolls right um so introducing that idea the stoniness right the stoniness of the seat of trolls uh is going to be relevant right to the stone trolls that they're about to see um but i think also i i also find it relevant to the character of bingo here and to me it's interesting and significant bingo's going Im- to he bingo's in the role of tom literally in the role of tom with the with the booting, right, with the kicking. Um, and notice it's not just that the, the, the kicking is a plausible way to put him off balance, right? It seems to me non-coincidental that, of course, both of those two moves were highly ill-advised and led to, to bad consequences, right? Bingo! should not have launched his foot right in all too realistic mimicry of the kicking of tom right or tom's kicking right um he shouldn't have done that uh it was unwise and it ended up having consequences which were far worse than he expected than he could even have foreseen right um just as tom should not have tried to kick the troll right um and so the, but it's not just the, it's not just the parallels. Oh, Diego, that's great. I hadn't thought about that. Right? Uh, Diego says they both have uncles, right? What's more, they both have uncles who are thieves, right? There you are, Diego. That had not occurred. I don't know that I ever would have thought of that. Uh, though, of course, once you say it, I'm like, duh, obviously, right? Burglar. I know, burglar. Um, Uh, as Stephen says, and who are missing, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Missing uncles um, whose bones may or may not be being gnawed by trolls at the time, right? Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, But there's also something... Think of the attitude of Tom in this poem, especially in this poem, right? Remember, in Sam's poem, uh, notice one of the stanzas that's missing from Sam's poem. Remember... Sam's version of the song goes after the um uh uh you know the the like when Tom comes back and says you 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 still shouldn't be gnawing on the uh the shin bone of my uncle uh the troll responds with for a couple of pins says troll and grins, I'll eat thee too and gnaw thy shins, a bit of fresh meat would go down sweet. I've a mind to dine on thee now, remember that right uh, and so he's about to pounce on Tom and eat him. Right, and that's when we get, but just when he thought his dinner was caught, he found his hands had hold of naught. Before he could mind, Tom slipped behind and gave him the boat to larn him. Right, that's again, this is Sam's version of the song that I'm singing now. So, um, uh, in both cases, there's this sort of defiant, roguish attitude of Tom's, right? Uh, he's not intimidated by the troll. I mean,. It takes some some hutzpah, right, to be confronted with a troll and not only to chide and be like, "Dude, put the bone down, man! That bone belonged to my uncle. You've got no right." Right? I mean, that that that. But then to to come around behind him and give him a boot in the butt, right? I mean, that's not everybody would do that to a troll, (laughs) right? That's very far from uh um from from Bilbo's encounter with the trolls, right? Um, so, uh, and to me that kind of fits Bingo, actually. Or at least is, works as a kind of, um, I don't know, aspirational attitude of Bingo's, right? Um, Bingo has some of that roguishness in him, right? We saw that with Farmer Maggot and the beer prank, at the very least, even if we've seen it nowhere else, right? We did see it then. Um, Think of Bingo confronting the Barrow White uh, in the Barrow, right? Um, You know, somebody who has just, like yesterday, confronted a Barrow White inside a Barrow, uh, this song might be kind of attractive, right? Again, especially if you sort of are paralleling yourself with Tom, in some sense, as, of course, he is, right? Um, so you know, I, I don't want to make too much of it, and I'm not saying because obviously this is a pre-existing song. Obviously Tolkien did li- like it. I am absolutely willing to agree that the re- the number one reason, um, the number one reason that he's that Tolkien includes this song is that it's awesome and he loves it. Right? I, I'm not I'm not trying to, to to question any of that, but I am saying I think there are good reasons why it occurred to Tolkien here. Right? Why that? I mean, there are other songs that he likes, too. Uh, there are other poems that he likes that he's really fond of, like The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, for instance, and you don't see... Okay, bad example. He did already include that one. Um, Errantry, right? He wrote this poem called Errantry, and you don't see him introducing that story into Bill... Okay, all right, that's another bad example. He's going to do that one, too. right? But again, he doesn't do them randomly, right? He does put them in, but he puts them in in the appropriate places. Um, he doesn't have bingo sing Errantry, here, right um if you're like what's Errantry and when does that come in don't worry we'll get there uh, later on um, uh, Errantry of course is the is the or is the original version of the Arendel was a Mariner poem um, that uh, that uh, Bilbo's gonna get in Rivendell. Um, anyway um yeah yeah and Patricia I agree I uh, uh, she says i love how the history of the song mimics how folk songs morph and adapt as they travel through the years and landscapes yeah yeah no exactly it's really cool um yeah yeah um so i think that this was uh was was re- so again it might seem at first uh that the you know the 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 cat and the fiddle <clears throat> song is just obviously more relevant. Like, you know, you might be like, Phew boy, it would have been pretty dumb for Tolkien to include, you know, to, to to stick with the troll song here in the inn. You know, it's much better the way it was. It's good the way it is. I like it. I like Sam singing the troll song later. I don't have any complaints to make. But I like I like this version too. Uh, and I actually think it works really well in some ways. Um, though possibly better with Bingo and the story as it is in this first version, than with Frodo, uh, as it was eventually, you know, in the published version. All right, I was going to look at the Cat and the Fiddle poem, too, but I think we're out of time. I don't have time for the next, like, um... four <laughs> slides, which the Cat and the Fiddle is on. If, uh, if you're very good, maybe we'll talk about The Cat and the Fiddle next time before we move on uh, and go for Because you know I can't, like, not talk about the poetry, right? I mean, that's just—we can't do that. Thank you for being patient. Thank you, those of you who sang along with me. I appreciate that. Uh, and I look forward to singing along with you at MythMoot. Thanks, everybody. Good night. See you guys next week as we will carry on getting closer to Rivendell. Thanks, everybody. Bye now.